Again, this is Proverbs chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And I just want to say thanks for coming. Thanks for being here, especially if it's your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. If you would, if it is your first time, grab a Connect card. It should be in the seat back in front of you. Let us know that you are here. Uh, we'd love to, to get to know you some more. Uh, before I jump in, I want to just uh, give a reminder to all the guys in the room. Uh, we have a men's breakfast this Saturday morning. It's going to be at 9 a.m., I believe. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but I'm trying to look around. Is it 9 a.m.? There's Brendan. Good. Amen. And uh, we're going to have food here, so that's good. I think Skeeters is going to get catered in. Uh, i got a friend of mine who's coming, KCC's. Actually, two friends of mine, another guy named Justin Hyde, pastors from Brenham. They're going to come and be teaching us. So, guys, if you haven't already signed up, we'd love it if you would go out into the booth, sign up for that. We do it three times a year, once a trimester. So, if you miss this one, you miss it for like a few months, all right? That's on you. Okay, we'd love for you to come. Go sign up. We'd love for you to be there. Um, so like Jenna said, we've been walking through the Psalms and the Proverbs, and we've been discussing the different emotions that we find in the, in the book of Psalms that David or other writers of the Psalms uh, communicate to God through their songs, and that they don't, on one hand, ignore those emotions, but on the other hand, that, that David and the writers of the Psalms, they don't immediately just accept to receive those emotions as truth, but that they bring those emotions to God so that he might help them to see what is true and what is false and regulate those emotions. And then what we've done is kind of go to the Proverbs and see what the son of David, uh, Solomon, says about how we should operate in wisdom in relation to those emotions. So last week, we discussed the emotion of contempt. Contempt. And just as a reminder, if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast, contempt is defined uh, in Webster's Dictionary as the feeling or the emotion that a person or thing is beneath our consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. I'll read that again. Contempt is the feeling or emotion that a person or a thing is beneath our consideration, worthless or deserving of scorn. And so we talked about how that emotion of contempt, the forms that it takes in our lives. And, and like we said last week, uh, these are in no way exhaustive. Contempt can take a number of forms in your life. But we highlighted three different forms that contempt can take in the life of uh, a human being. The first is gossip as a form of contempt. And so we said that we alienate, we isolate, we humiliate, we dehumanize others when we take the, per, the place of narrator in their life and we take their story, whether we heard that story from them or whether they heard that story from another, we take the place of narrator and we tell their story without them present and we form a coalition around us to hear our version of their story. Uh, and, in many, and in many cases, as the gossiper takes the, the form of judge and jury and executioner with this person's story. And we said this is a form of contempt because ultimately what we're doing is we're dehumanizing that person. We're dehumanizing their story and we are holding them in contempt that they are worthless to be able to tell their own story. Second, boasting as a form of contempt. So boasting is when we lift ourselves up. And by lifting ourselves up, we inevitably are trying to push everybody else down or at least keep them in their rightful place, right? 
you've ever been around a boaster, they're okay with you being successful as long as you're not as successful as them. They're okay for you being good looking as long as you know you're not as good looking as them. They're okay for you being strong as long as you know they are stronger than you, right? This is the life of the boaster. And so that's a form of contempt because ultimately we don't want people to hold the intrinsic value as image bearers of God. We want them to be lower than us. And so depending upon where we feel on the totem pole, we want other people to be just a notch below that. And then lastly, blame shifting as a form of contempt. And this is... Uh, personified in the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent, and God comes to Adam and says, you know, why, why did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat? And Adam's first response, because he can't bear his own sin, he can't bear his own guilt, is it's the woman you gave me. She's the real problem, right? And then she said, Eve, you know, what happened? What, what did you do? Why did you eat of the fruit? Well, it's the serpent's fault, the serpent. If the snake wasn't here, I would have never done this, right? And this is a form of contempt because ultimately when we can't bear our own sin and we don't want to own the fact that we have sinned, we blame shift. And in, the, and in so doing, we diminish others' value by saying, well, it's really on them. Or in a marriage, it looks like this. I would be better off if I had never met this person, Because if I didn't have them in my life, I wouldn't be as sinful as I am. So you take this person who's already a sinner in need of God's grace, and you say, my sin is also their fault. So you take your sin off your shoulders, you put sin on there, and so ultimately they're just a reprobate, right? Your husband, he's just a reprobate. He has no hope because my sin's really on him and his sin's on him, so I don't know why anybody wants to be around him, right? And ultimately, what are we doing? We don't don't treat them as people. We treat them as just this you know, unholy creature that sin also shares a bed with us, right? Blame shifting, and it's a form of contempt. And we do this for a number of reasons, but two major reasons. One is self-preservation, and by that I mean that we just want to preserve some sense of self-worth and self-value, and so we hope that if we can maybe belittle others that we feel a little better about ourselves. Or self-exaltation, which is I already feel really good about myself, but it can only get better if others are where I think they are, which is less than me, right? And these two these two ideas drive us. They drive us to treat others with contempt. And in the end, sadly, they don't give us what we crave. And so we just kind of continue on in that vein. And what I want to do this morning is I want to spend some more time unpacking these forms from the Proverbs and talk about what Solomon says about these three forms of contempt. And before I do that, I want to make mention of how we ended last week, because really you can't have each of these sermons in exclusion to one another. How we ended last week is that although we treat one another with contempt, and although we have been victims of contempt in our lives, ultimately, at its height, we have exhibited contempt for God himself, that all sin is us looking at God as though his law is worthless, his way is not worthy of our consideration, and so all sin is us holding God in contempt, and yet when we held God in contempt, the response of God, although it could have been to hold us in contempt and hold us as worthless, God's response was Jesus on the cross for us, bearing the contempt of the entire world. All of the contempt that you and I deserved, Jesus bore that on the cross for us, in our place, for our sins. Jesus walked to the cross and he was silent as they mocked him. Jesus got the crown of thorns put on him and they kept saying, they yelled out to him, you know, if you're a king, save yourself. Jesus didn't respond. He just absorbed the contempt of the whole world for you and for me so that we could be called children of God. That's how we ended last week. And so I want to say that because what we're going to talk about this morning is really practical. We're going to talk about gossip. We're going to talk about blame shifting. We're going to talk you know, about encouragement instead of boasting. 
But if we don't talk about those things in relation to having been forgiven by Jesus, then we're ultimately just going to try. If you're type A in the room, you're going to be like, good, I got a list of things to do. If you're not type A in the room, you're going to be like, why did I come? I feel terrible for coming to church today, okay? And so what I want to say is on, on the front end, the gospel is not do better, try harder. The gospel is that Jesus has done what you and I could never do. Jesus has loved us perfectly. Jesus has done everything to forgive us, not just of our past sins, not just of our present sins, but of our future sins that we, don't even, we haven't even conjured up yet. Jesus loves us enough to bear the contempt and scorn of the whole world for us. And so it's from that mercy, it's from that grace that Christ has given us that we can consider our future sins and put to death what is earthly in us and put on what is holy and righteous and true. But if we try to do that on, the, on our own strength, I just wanna help you by saying you're gonna fail. Here's why I say you're gonna fail. Everybody that's type A go, you don't know me, I don't fail. Well, here's what I'll say. When we succeed at trying to be righteous and you are type A, if you do that by your own strength, the next feeling is pride and now you failed. The next feeling is, man, I've done a great job and now you failed because you think that you're great, Right? And then for those of you who are not type A and you just you, you continue tripping over yourself, right? Some of you are like, the only thing in between me and a, and a fulfilled goal is a decision. And then there's the rest of us that are like more like me, that I have all sorts of ideas and goals and most of all of them never come to fruition because of me, right? And the gospel speaks to both of us. It both humbles the prideful, but it lifts up the head of that one who thinks they cannot. It fuels and it fans into flame the lazy and it calms down the overworking. It says to one, rest in what Jesus has done for you. It says to another, stand up and walk in the way Jesus has created you to be. But all of that is rooted in the gospel, which is free grace given by God, a gift, not something we could earn. So here's what I want to do is if you'll bow your heads, let's pray and ask God for what he can only give us before we start talking about what that might look like, okay? So if you'll bow your heads. Father, we confess on our best day, we could not do the things that you've commanded us to do without your help. When we read your law, Lord, it is like looking in a mirror and seeing dirt everywhere. Jesus, your blood cleanses us. Thank you for the cross, Jesus, that you did what we could never have done. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask, would you empower us? Would you convict us, but also comfort us? Would you bring life to our bones as we look in your word for wisdom and guidance? But Lord, lest we fall in pride, we don't think we can do this on our own, so we ask for your help. Help make us like you, Jesus. Give us the strength, give us the confidence, give us the courage. Not in ourselves, but in you alone, God. Come, we ask now, and give us what we do not have. As your word bids us to fly, give us the wings, because we don't have them. And Lord, we ask that you would do so in a way that the whole world would see that you're a loving God. And they would see it through our actions, through our words, through our deeds, through our thoughts. God, help us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my, my son Jonas, uh, he, he has a, a sense of justice and righteousness that I think is a lot like his mom. Um, he, he has a lot, my, my wife lays down rules in the household. And if you know my wife at all, you know she's a, she's a rule follower, but she's also a rule setter, okay? So she sets the boundaries in the house. 
and she, she tells Jonas, like, this is what you can do and you cannot do. And over time, he has been trained really well on things that other people will just be shocked by. Jonas comes in the house, first thing he does, takes his shoes off, puts them where they're supposed to go. You know, whenever Jonas is uh, laying down asleep, he doesn't get up out of his bed and run to us in the morning to wake us up. He lays there and he starts saying things to himself because he knows the camera's there, but he knows he's not supposed to get up until he's told he can get up. This is the kind of stuff that happens in our household. I know it's crazy and it's probably unhealthy, but it is. Now, there's another side to that, which is that Jonas also, when other people, other children break the rules in our house around him, it just kind of baffles him a little bit. Like he, 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 somebody walks in, a kid, child walks in and has their shoes on and starts running around. He goes, da-da, and he'll point like this. Mm, that's, he doesn't, Jonas has a little bit of a speech delay, so he doesn't have like full sentence. He just kind of has, mm, no, bad, that's what he'll say. And, and the idea is, this is what's happened, and that's not, that's not according to the rules. We need to get justice on this thing. Because he knew if he would have done that, mom would have been there. Hey, put your shoes back over there, right? That's what she would have said. But when it's another child, you know, we typically don't try to parent your kids. We just judge you from afar, okay? <laughs> but he wants the justice to come in, right? And when you start thinking about gossip, I think gossip comes from, at times, the same heart, which is, I'm going to tell this story, true or false, because if it's wrong, I want there to be a sense of justice about the person who's been wronged, or I want there to be a sense of justice about this person who thinks they got away with it, or whatever it may be. We find ourselves engaging in gossip. And, and my point number one here is the Proverbs don't only tell us to reject gossip, it also tells us to fan into flame something else. So point number one is this, reject gossip and extend grace. Reject gossip and extend grace. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 12 through 13 say this, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. So Solomon says this, he says, mocking and gossip go hand in hand because it's the same spirit of belittlement that ignores the Imago Dei. So we ignore that someone is made in the image of God. We do so by mocking them to their face or we do so by gossiping about them behind their back. But nonetheless, it's of the same spirit, which is that they don't, they don't, they're not worthy of consideration as a person. Solomon says the man or woman who's worthy of trust is going to cover the offense and not reveal the darkest moments of any person's life, whether it be their actions, whether it be their words, whether it be their thoughts, that the trustworthy man or woman is not going to out them, but it's going to cover that offense. Proverbs 16 verse 28 says this, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. That word whisperer is talking about the person who gossips the person who calls you on the phone, right? We all have this family member, right, that somehow knows everything about every distant family member. It's like the most detailed stuff about your 17th cousin you didn't know existed who lives in another country. It's like, did you hear about so-and-so? Who is so-and-so? Oh, you know, they're this person's mom's, aunt's, cousin's, former roommate, you know, and they have this story about them. That's the whisperer. And Paul actually says in 2 Timothy, when he starts to talk about gossip, he says that gossip is like gangrene. Don't Google image gangrene, by the way. It's nasty, Okay, gangrene is what Paul likens it to, which is a great analogy because what he says is gossip is a disease that rots the body from the inside. And if you think about the church, you know, Paul, he considered himself a leader of not just a local church, but he considered himself a leader of the church at large. It's, it's called a body, the body of Christ. And the, the gossip 
is a disease that begins to rot parts of the body. It kills tissue is what gangrene does. Or it starts to infect people. Proverbs 20, 19 says this, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. That's intense, first of all. But it says don't associate, don't make friends with someone who's the whisper, the babbler, who doesn't consider how their words could affect others. Solomon says the wise actually won't befriend the gossiper and that it's not sinful or wrong not to befriend them. You may say, well, that's not loving. And, Paul, and Solomon is actually saying the more loving thing is to consider the most vulnerable party in gossip, namely the person who's not present that you're talking about. The only way to ensure that gangrene doesn't spread is by isolating the tissue that is infected and then treating it. So one of the things you have to do first and foremost is not give ear to the gossip and then be able to treat the gossiper with the same grace that they're not extending to others, but nonetheless to address it for what it is. It's a sickness. As an encouragement, don't ever believe the lie that you're just merely an ear for a gossiping person. You are never just a neutral party whenever someone's gossiping to you because you cannot be unaffected. When we give ear to gossip, our hearts are infected. You might say, no, it's not true, Court, because I don't believe it. Well, nonetheless, when you give ear to it, tell me with a, with a straight face that when you see that person that was talked about, it doesn't cross your mind again, at least at some level, whether you believe true or false. Therefore, their character has been tainted at some level. When I was in student ministry, there's a story about this, uh, this uh, older adult uh, ministry leader, and she had a group of girls that she was ministering to, and she's an adult, and these teenage girls, she finds out, are gossiping about her. And so she thinks about it and prays about it. Rather than addressing it immediately, she lets it go on for like three weeks. It's getting worse. People are coming to her saying, this is happening. This is, you got to address it. She doesn't address it. She lets it go on and on. After it's gotten to critical mass, she takes the girls. They go up on the, they, she takes them to the roof of the church. Now, you're probably thinking like crime story, right? She's going to toss these girls straight off, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like 101. You don't gossip. If you know that someone's leading you to the top of the church and you gossip about them, you don't go, right? But anyway... You get up to the top, and she lines them up up there, and she, gets, she takes a phone book, and she rips this phone book and all the pages out of it. And she hands each of the girls a big, hefty stack of loose-leaf papers. And they, they were in Rockford, Illinois, and so it's windy, and she says, throw it off the roof. And so all the girls, they take the paper, and they just throw it all off the roof. The papers are going everywhere in the wind. And then she looks at them, and she says, now go pick them all up. And the girls just stare at her right there like, you've got to be kidding me, like, you're, not, you're serious. And after she lets them kind of sit in it for a while, they say, we can't pick it all up. There's no way we could find it all. There's no way we'd be able to pick up every loose leaf of paper. It's not findable. And she says, that's right. And there's no way that I can go and pick up all the pieces of what you've done to my character either by gossiping about me. I can't even, I don't even know how I would track it all down. She purposefully let them get it out so much that her entire character had been marred to an irreparable place so that they would recognize that gossip's like gangrene. And that one person just tells that one person that they trust, that just tells that one person that they trust, that tells that one person that they trust, until by the end of it, not only do a thousand people know, but you started off by just being someone who you know, stole a candy bar and you ended up a murderer on the other end. And your entire reputation has been slandered. So even when we just give ear to it, we are affected by it. So now here's the question. What do we do instead? Well, Solomon says this. Instead of gossiping, we extend grace. This means we cover an offense. Whether somebody offended you 
or whether you're hearing about an offense, you can cover that offense by not being the one who repeats the gossip. Now, how do you do this? I want to say this first. You don't do this by your own power or your own strength, because especially if you've been the one offended, you're just like my son. You want justice. Jonas doesn't like it that he gets in trouble for not taking his shoes off, but other people come in and they just get to traipse all over the carpet. It's not fair. He wants justice. You and I want justice too when it has to do with us. Now, whenever we're the ones that are the offenders, we want grace, but that's another topic. We, we extend grace because we have had our sins covered by Jesus. It's only the forgiven that have this ability, innate ability by the power of the Spirit to forgive other people. Jesus had a conversation with Peter once where he talked to the Pharisees and the Pharisees were angry because Jesus had invited the tax collectors and the sinners to dinner. And there was this woman who was just a filthy commoner who was coming up to Jesus as he was eating and Jesus wouldn't just dismiss her away from the table and the Pharisees say, send this woman away, it's disgusting. Why are you allowing her to come near to us? And Jesus turns to Peter and says, I wanna tell you a story, Peter. There was, there was a man who was forgiven much. He was forgiven of a debt that was hefty. And there was another man who was forgiven very little. He didn't have a very big debt, but they forgave it either. Which one of those people do you think was most grateful for being forgiven? And Peter said, well, he who was forgiven much. And Jesus doesn't even finish the story. He just, he just says, he who's forgiven much will forgive much, but he who's forgiven little will forgive little. And he's basically teaching the Pharisees that the reason that they don't like this woman being there crying out for mercy is because the Pharisees don't think they need mercy. The Pharisees don't think they need forgiveness. The Pharisees think that they've, they've sinned little and therefore they only have a little bit of mercy to give. But for us, for you and I, if we really believe the gospel, what we believe as Christians is that we have sinned at the height of, at the height of all heights. No matter who you are, if you were born on literally on the altar and you're immediately baby baptized, not in submersion because that's dangerous, but sprinkled immediately. Or if you're in here and you feel like you have had the, the worst record of all, all of us can join in with Paul and say we are the chief of sinners. Because it's not just what we've done, it's who we've sinned against, God himself. And therefore, we have received great mercy. So you reject gossip and you cover an offense because your offenses have been covered in Christ. There's this story at the end of Genesis where, uh, or at, at the end of Genesis chapter three, after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it says that God took animals and he slayed the animals and he took, and he took the coats off the animals, the fur, and he clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness with the, with the fur. That it was the very first time that Adam and Eve had needed clothes because they were naked and ashamed, but before they were, they were naked and didn't even know and were not ashamed. But now they needed clothes to cover their nakedness. And this is a symbol to point forward to Christ that it was the slain lamb that covered our nakedness, covered our guilt, covered our shame, that Jesus died so that we could be covered and that our offenses would not be outed. You ever think about this? Jesus was a public spectacle on the cross so that everyone would see his shame, so that you and I could be covered and no one would see it but Christ. That's why we, rather than gossip, rather than outing someone for what, whether we know it's true or not, we can cover the offense because Christ has done that for us. Now, I want to say there's a place for bringing to light something that's really hurting people. I'm not advocating for men, you guys walking by, you see a back alleyway, a woman's getting you know, robbed and beaten up, and you're like, I'm going to cover the offense. It's not what I'm saying. I think that's immoral and wrong, Okay. What I'm saying is that 99.999% of things that you and I deal with and gossip about on a regular basis aren't that. 
And that what we ought to do is rather than out someone, we should cover the offense. Number two, Proverbs 28, 13. Reject blame shifting and confess your sins. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So on one hand, we should be looking to show mercy and grace to others by not outing them. But on the other hand, for you and for me, we should be actively confessing and outing our own faults because we know the gospel is true and there is freedom in Christ. So for the brother or the sister that you know is hiding their sin, rather than you outing them, you should be more about the business of outing yourself and your own sin because you know Jesus loves you and has accepted you in Christ and there's no condemnation for you now. So you can be free and open in your confession. We obtain mercy by bringing our whole selves into the light where we can have fellowship with God again because now there's no shame because Jesus has covered our shame. So we can confess our transgressions. We can walk in humility. Now there's two reasons why we wouldn't do that. One would be we don't want to confess our sin because we have a high view of ourselves that we have painted to everyone around us and therefore we don't want to be outed and us be diminished in their eyes. Now, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves here and remind ourselves that no one is great, no one is righteous, not one, only Jesus. So if you have a high view of yourself, listen, friends, we should try to stay as low as we can. It doesn't hurt as, it doesn't hurt as bad when you fall from one foot. It hurts bad when you fall from the Empire State Building. So don't try to climb it. Just point to Jesus, who's already up there. He's already exalted, high above every other name. And what the Bible tells us is that when we actually humble ourselves, that we get to be exalted with Christ. He calls us up. But when we try to come up here, it's very hard to confess because we've got this view of ourselves that we've been trying to project, and in the end, we don't want people to think less of us. But there's a second reason that we might not confess, and I want to address that. Maybe you won't confess because you don't think you'll be accepted because your sins are so great. Your sins are so grave. You've done something or said something or thought something or you have a pattern of something that you feel like it's unforgivable. And there's a quote here from C.H. Spurgeon that I just think is gold. He says this, Let not your sense of sin make you think little of my master. You are a great sinner, but he is a greater savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or overmatched him. Check this out. Come, Goliath sinner. The son of David can conquer thee and save you yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, don't think you've overmatched God's grace with your sin because you can't. Like Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We have an abounding God of mercy. Jesus' blood covers all sins. The most grave, dark sinner cannot and is not too far away from the strength and arm of our loving God. It's impossible to be out of his reach. It's impossible to be too far gone. It's impossible to be unlovable with with a Savior like we have. He's greater than that. That's why he says, come on, Goliath sinner. The little ruddy shepherd boy can overcome overcome you with mercy, with grace. So I want to encourage you this morning, confess your sins openly to one another and to God. James 5 says, when we confess our sins to one another, we're healed. There is a healing component to confessing your faults, failures, flaws to others and knowing that Jesus is enough. Now, I want to make a caveat here. Perhaps confessing your sins ought to be done with the Lord first and someone trustworthy. I say that to say the best place for your confessions are not Facebook. 
<laughs> and I laugh about that, but I have to say it because I've seen it, right? And it's all over. It's time now. And then you have this big, long post like, oh my gosh, it's just not the best place. You're like, well, I'm just outing myself. Listen, out yourself with the Lord, with someone who loves you and cares. Don't just cast your pearls out before the swine. That's the best way to interpret that verse, in my opinion. There's nothing more swine-like than Facebook sometimes, isn't there? There are trolls everywhere waiting for that kind of stuff. And so I would encourage you, don't fall into that. Instead, find people who love you, who are going to, on one hand, they're not going to condemn you. On the other hand, they're not just going to tell you to do better and try harder and give you religion. They're going to give you Christ. You're loved by God saved by Jesus. You're more than that, and you can repent and believe, and like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, and sin no more. Do you know that's actually something that we, by the power of the Spirit, can do? That's something that's possible for us. It doesn't mean we're going to be sinless on this side of things, but it means the patterns of sin in our lives can be broken by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. That, that's true. So I would encourage you to confess your sins, experience that to a trustworthy brother or sister, and most of all to the Lord. And then lastly, reject boasting and encourage others. Reject boasting and encourage others. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 1 through 2 says this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. Boasting about tomorrow gives people the impression that you are so completely in control and wise and powerful that nothing could ever derail you. And I want to say this, the Christian should have a peace about tomorrow, don't get me wrong. But to boast about tomorrow is to be self-centered. It's to say, I have no worries in the world because I made the right financial decisions, because I raised my kids the right way, because I ate leafy spinach and and I neglected Chick-fil-A. I eat the right things, I say the right things, I do the right things. I've led my family the right way and therefore I have no worries about tomorrow. I wanna say to you, and I said this to the nine, if you're a believer, let me promise you something, your plan A will not work. And the reason I I wanna tell you that is because your plan A was self-salvation. It was only by grace that Jesus reached in. You thought the best way for you was to save yourself. That doesn't work. So you're already on plan B now if you're a Christian. And I want to tell you this, your plan B is probably going to be thwarted, most likely. Because God is so gracious that he won't let you think you can do this on your own in your best efforts and best way. And so Solomon says, don't boast about tomorrow. And then he says, let another man's lips praise you. Now, what I want to talk about is what is the implicit command here? Because the explicit command is, don't be the guy who constantly talks so well about yourself. That guy's annoying that gal is annoying, okay? Once again, Facebook, if you're always like, you know, doing these, these humble brags on Facebook, it's annoying, okay? But there's an implicit command here, which is what? Let another man's lips praise you. What's that? That means that if we're all just sitting back waiting for somebody else to praise us, there's not going to be anybody to be in the seat of encouragement. So maybe what God wants from us is that we would be the one praising and encouraging others. Someone has to sit in that seat. And hopefully that's us. I believe the church is meant to be that place, a culture of encouragement, always looking for ways to encourage those who are around us. I wrote down five reasons why I think encouragement is so important from the scriptures. Number one, when we encourage others, we are glorifying God in whose image they are created. When you encourage someone, you are actually glorifying the God who made them. That's just the inverse of when you mock someone, you are mocking the creator who made them, right? The inverse is speaking life to someone, encouraging someone, which ultimately points to the Lord. Number two, 
When we encourage others, we reject the sinful tendency to make ourselves the center of the universe. There's no, there are few better ways to kill your selfishness than to be an encourager of others. Because slowly but surely, you stop obsessing about yourself and you start looking out for other people. In order to be an encourager, you actually have to be considering others. You have to be looking at them. You have to be watching them. You have to be thinking about them. But in order for you to be self-centered, you don't have to do any of that stuff. All you have to do is just do your natural, which is to always think about you, whether you're hungry, whether you're fat, whether you're skinny, whether you're cute, whether you have hair, whether you don't have hair, whether you wish you had more hair. Just Freudian, okay? This is me. I'm going through this. I'm in the 30s. Deal with it. (laughs) Number three, when we encourage others, we could be pushing back the darkness that threatens all of our lives at one point or another. You never know who you're sitting next to that might be going through one of the darkest moments of their, their lives, and your word of encouragement could be the very thing that turns the tides. That's why I encourage people with home group. You're like, you know what? I'm actually doing really well. I'm not going to go to home group. I feel pretty good. Like home group is just a therapy session for you. No. It's like, if that were the case, then all you have at home group is a bunch of Eeyore sitting around. There's no Tigger there to encourage anyone. Everybody's just sitting around like, things are bad. You know, everyone's thirsty. No one has a drink because everybody that has a drink is at home on Netflix, you know? And everybody's just dying of thirst at home group because I'm doing well. I don't really need to be there. No, because it's not about you all the time. Sometimes the role is for you to be there to be an encouragement to other people. Number four, when we encourage others, we are adding fuel to the fire of goodness and good works. Do you know what happens when you encourage someone in their generosity? They're more generous. You know what happens when you encourage someone in their smile, in their disposition? They smile more. Their disposition is more joyful. You know what happens when you encourage a student in their hard work? They work harder Coaches know this. It's why coaches simultaneously can be really hard, but also whenever you do something really well, they get really excited about it. If you've ever been on a football field, it's the craziest thing in the world. The amount of screaming that happens, it's nuts. Like, why is everyone so excited? If you were able to be on the backside of it, you're like, this is stupid how excited everyone is about this little thing. But if you ever see, even in Little League, when two little boys hit each other and one of them lays a really good lick on somebody, how adult men will lose their minds. They start stripping. Ah! You know, headbutting, they're bleeding, they're so happy. Because that which is encouraged tends to only increase. Now, the inverse of that is the things that we just leave dormant, they they tend to decrease. Think about this with your kids. So on one hand, the Bible says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Well, what's the inverse of that? Being an encourager to your children to provoke them to good works. Number five, when we encourage others, we reflect the image of our God who spoke his pleasure over Jesus and us. Most importantly, our God is an encouraging God. In the Gospels, we find a moment where Jesus is being baptized and the Trinity is all present. We find the Spirit of God descending upon the Son of God like a dove and the Father from heaven speaks down and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I need to tell you something. Jesus in his divinity did not have an ego that needed to be stroked. He did not need to hear praise. But in his humanity, where he was like you and me, this was important. That the father would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But there's a second piece to that, which is what? For everyone who is in Christ, that word from the father is true for you. This is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's our God. He is an encourager. So every time you look at your son or your daughter and you say, I love you, I'm pleased with you. 
when you look at another person in the church, you say, I see Jesus in you. Because let let's be clear, what we're talking about here is encouraging Christ in people. Because there isn't much good in us apart from Christ. There's no good in us apart from God himself. So when we say, I see this in you, you're saying, that looks like Jesus. And it's in those moments that we reflect our Father, who is an encouraging God. So how can we get better at this? Just a few things before we close. Number one, look at others more than competition, more than interruptions, and more than transactions. People are not always there for you to compete with. People are not just interruptions. Think about this, especially those of us who have kids, right? Like, I I struggle with the fact that my son oftentimes feels like an interruption to more important things for me to do rather than the most important thing that's been given to me, (laughs) right? Not just interruptions. And lastly, not just transactions. The people, the barista at Starbucks is more than just a transaction. Person at HEB, right? Checking you out, not just a transaction, your coworker, your employer, you know, your employees are not just transactions. They are people, and we can look at them as people, image bearers of God. Number two, look for Christ in others. Look for what you see in other people that looks like Jesus and then tell them about it. I think that the church is not over-encouraged. It's an under-encouraged body. We don't tell each other enough where we see Jesus in each other, and we should be more about that business. It should be 10 to 1 with our rebukes. Some of us, we are just so passionate about rebuking each other. (laughs) I'll tell you like it is. Well, thank God. Will you also tell me like it is when I get it right? Nope, not interested. I'm I'm more of a critiquer, you know? And those are the people that, you know, they most of the time they're more vocal. I want to encourage those of you who are encouragers, be more vocal about that. Number three, be specific when you can. General encouragement tends to fall flat at times. You're a good woman. You look at your wife, you're so pretty. Now, here's the thing. If she's bereft of encouragement, that might be a good start, okay? But I would just say to you, that's probably not just going to, you know, really move the needle a lot. You're just so pretty. Be specific about your encouragements, which means you have to actually take notice of people. What are they actually good at? What are you seeing in their lives? Take notice, take notes. And I would say, lastly, practice on your spouse and on your children, Start there. Where can you specifically be an encouragement to the ones right around you? It's funny, sometimes we share a bed with someone that we rarely say a kind word to. Now, how do we do this? And by what power do we do this? We do this only through Jesus, who is our covering, our advocate, and our boast. There is no way to do this or be this apart from Christ. Jesus is our covering. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 which tells us blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered, that's you and me. Jesus is our advocate. When we were full of sin and unrighteous, Jesus died and made us righteous by his righteousness. So that now when we fall short and we do, we come before Christ who's our advocate before the Father and we're received. And number three, Jesus is our boast. I love this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Why? Why would he boast in the cross, not the empty tomb? You ever thought of that? Because the cross simultaneously humbles us and exalts us. The cross is the reminder that you and I need a savior. And the cross is the reminder that Jesus loves us enough and values us enough that he would be willing to bear that for you and for me. It brings us up again that you and I are children of God because of the cross. And Paul says, I won't boast in my earthly accolades. I won't boast in anything but that. That is my boast. And it's through 
that that we can be encouragers. It's through the cross of Christ and the power of the Spirit that we can be confessing our sins and extending grace and mercy to others. And so this morning, I want to encourage you with this. What do you sense that God's disposition is towards you? Do you think that he just merely accepts you or tolerates you? Or do you see what Paul saw on the cross, that he delights in you and he loves you? I want to encourage you. It's not just that you're accepted by God. You are. You're delighted in by God. It's not just that he tolerates our silliness. He has tolerated it. And what a mercy it is. But he loves us in the midst of it. So if you'll stand to your feet, I want to pray for us. Father, we sit now underneath the delight of heaven only because of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you lived the life that we could never have lived. Thank you, Jesus that we sing songs to you and they are a delight because you've made us new again. Thank you, Jesus, that you swallowed up death so that we could have life. You were made poor, Jesus, so that we could be wealthy in righteousness. And thank you, Father, that it was your gracious will that it would be so. I ask God for those under the sound of my voice as we stand here, both as victims of gossip and gossipers, both as victims of blame shifting and blame shifters, both as boasters and victims of boasting. God, would you now make us into who we were meant to be, sons and daughters of God. Jesus, make us like you. And as we partake of the bread and as we partake of the juice, remembering your body and your shed blood, Jesus, would you now empower us that we are not so sinful that you could not rescue us. We are not too far gone, my God. But would you simultaneously humble us and bring us into exaltation as we sing. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.